that all died in 40 years' time. Their children were allowed to go in on the, after they conquered the land, and it was just continually acting like unbelievers because they were. That's the point. There was only a small remnant within Israel which were true. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, your Word, as always, is the one and only source of truth on the planet, and it is worthy of praise and honor and respect. And I ask, dear Lord, that as we look into your Word this very day, that we might see things as they are with a clear perspective concerning the world and the church, all the people in it. I know, Lord, that there are undeniable truths that you just don't get anywhere but the Bible. And what the Bible has influenced over 2,000 years, 3,200 years, there's been an influence from Sinai and before that from men of God, even if it's proclaimed by mouth, that that your word and your truth, along with those ways in which you hold back sin and have done that since Adam, that make the planet a better place than it would be than if you just withdrew yourself completely. And we see you doing that, and you've been doing that just in our lifetime, let alone over the last 500 years. The world just gets worse and worse and more complex and more intelligent and more evil all at the same time. I ask your Heavenly Father that you would help us to look with a loving eye on the world and considering that you have a plan, a schematic for everything that's taking place. You're not taken surprised by anything. It's all within the plan, and one day we'll all be made perfectly clear for everyone. I ask, Lord, that you open now the word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. This is episode 73, entitled 11 Days or 40 Years. And it's from Deuteronomy chapter 1, and I'm going to read the beginning of Deuteronomy 1, verses 1 through 3. These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah opposite Zuf between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazaroth and Disahab. You know, I I love this next part. So we have the map put out and you can look at your map and see how they, where they went and Then he says, and I just, I love this, the way God inspired Moses, Moses who no doubt was completely on the same page with telling the story this way. (laughs) It is a collaboration of sorts, though it's inspired. And Moses writes, quote, 
It is 11 days journey from Horeb, that's in Egypt, by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. So now there's the backdrop, there's the journey, there's the time, it would be. And then he goes on, and this could be said um, in in verse 3 as a description of the journey, but also a snide remark, a joke, a sad commentary, and would have, could have been completely glorious, but in fact was not, because he goes on to say in verse 3, in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the sons of Israel in accordance with everything that the Lord had commanded him to declare to them. Now this is Moses, maybe someone was taking dictation, uh, maybe someone was God speaking through Moses put this down this way. But he gives out the journey by saying that it's 11 days. It's an 11 day journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea, and then says, in the 40th year. That is to say, what could have taken 11 days and been nothing short of glorious. Instead, it turned out to be a 40-year trek through the wilderness. The reason for the extensively lengthy journey is given beginning in verse 22. Quote, Then all you approached me and said, Let us send men ahead of us, so that they may spy out the land for us, and bring back to us word of the way by which we should go, up and the cities which we should enter. The plan pleased me. I took twelve of your men, one of each tribe. Then they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshgal and spied it out. And they took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us. They also brought us back a report and said, The land that the Lord our God is about to give us is good. I mean, it's a, the good part of the message. And undoubtedly, two of them were exuberant about it. And the other ten, you know, maybe half-hearted, meant what they said about the good part. They did see that. Unfortunately, the wonderful land that God was bringing to them was not without obstacles that would take faith in God to overcome. For this reason, we read beginning in verse 26, quote, Yet you were unwilling to go up. Instead, you rebelled against the, the, land, the command of the Lord your God. And you grumbled in your tents and said, and Get this, there were each man in his own tent with his own family, and they're talking among themselves. And God can hear this, like, you know, however many there were, let's say a million, you know, a million voices all coming out you know, uh, of all of these different tents. Yet you were unwilling to go up. Instead, you rebelled against the Lord your God, and you grumbled in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to hand us over to the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt by saying, quote, the people are bigger and taller than we. The cities are large and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we saw the sons of Anakim there. Now, these are like giants. 
But I said to you, do not be terrified, nor fear them. The Lord your God, who goes before you, will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, just as a man carries his son, and all, the, all of the road which you have walked until you came to this place. Yet in spite of all this, you did not trust in the Lord your God, who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to make camp in the fire by night to show you by the way by which you should go and in the cloud by day. Now let's understand something here. And people have heard talking about this for 50 years. And we make comments about, you know, how could they either, how could they look at all these great things that God was doing for them and then just fall apart and have no faith and go in. And then, you know, but, you know, we're the same way. Well, I certainly hope that we're not the same way. And if there is, if we are, then I hope there's a real good reason because what I'm about to say in this message, God is not pleased with these people. If God, if we're the same way as them, let me tell you something. You're going to be spending an, an eternity, but it won't be in heaven. Now listen careful to this. Because at this point in the narrative, we can hear the frustration in Moses. Now Moses was a man. He was a man who was a mighty general. He takes matters in his own hands. He kills an Egyptian. God sends him to the backside of the desert for 40 years himself first. And f after that 40 years of just being a shepherd, you know, he just, he just wasn't up to the task of any calling. And he pleads with God, you know, I don't have a tongue. I don't have a talk. I can't do this. can't do that. Blah, blah, blah. And God forces him to go. I've been preparing you for 40 years to do this. I mean, who's the God of your tongue anyway? I mean, God does the same thing to Moses. Moses turns around 40 years later, and he's going into the land. He's not cut off from the land the way these people will be and have been at this point. They're all dead now. He's talking to the children. But Moses went in. Now, there's the true Christian, and then there's not... We're not too sure. The narrative here, it, we hear the frustration in Moses as he's talking to these people, and particularly about the unbelief that became so obvious to Moses. Let us remember that the penalty that fell upon Israel fell upon Moses and Caleb and Joshua. Then after hearing Moses' depiction of what took place, he then continues to remind them that, that this is the children who remained from the beginning at verse 34. So this is the children that he's talking to. And it says this, quote, Then the Lord heard the sounds of your words, and he was angry and swore an oath, saying, Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephna. He shall see it, and to him I will give the land on which he has set foot, and to his sons, because he has followed the Lord fully. Now look, there's a clear difference here between these people and Caleb and Joshua 
and Moses. Now Moses came to the point of sin and he didn't go into the land. But I would ask, I mean Moses was willing to go. And if Moses was alone, he would have went in. And he would have went in 40 years earlier, along with Caleb and with Joshua. But Moses had to listen to the frustrating people's voices of unbelief for 40 years. I'm not making excuses for Moses. I'm just telling the story. And I need to tell the story in the way God tells the story. This is the story. Verse 37, The Lord was angry with me also on your account, saying, Not even you shall enter there. Joshua the son of Nun, who stands before you, shall himself enter there, encourage him, for he will give it to Israel as an inheritance. Moreover, your little ones who you said, now he's talking to Israel, would become plunder, and your sons who this day have no knowledge of good and evil shall enter there, and I will give it to them, and they shall take possession of it. But as for you, turn around, set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. So they're going back. They're going back the way they had gone before. They're not going into the land because of, and we're going to get into that, because of unbelief. Moses would have gone on. Moses was a believer. But I dare anyone who's listened to my voice to put up with this people for 40 years and not snap at least once. God had reasons. He didn't let them go in. One of the reasons, and the main reason is as the story is told, which he did lose and he misrepresented God and he did something wrong. Now, Moses got to heaven. We see him standing on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration along with Elijah. These people did not get into heaven. Moses did not get into a promised land. So what? He went off into, into paradise and waited the coming of the Messiah some 1,200 years later, and, and then he went into heaven, just like all the rest of the Old Testament saints. But this, these people neither went into the promised land nor went to heaven. Big difference. Oftentimes, preachers and teachers turn this account into a picture of the Christian life. And I'm sorry to say that is not entirely true. Of course, Christians struggle with faith and obedience. No one's perfect. It's not about perfection, the Christian life, but it's about direction. But that is not what, what is being said in this passage. This passage is about the unbelief that damns people to hell. And I'm going to prove that in the course of this message. Moses was dealing with unbelieving Jews who were Jews by birth, but not by rebirth. Moses, Caleb, and Joshua received from God saving faith. They were not only Jews as sons of Abraham, but they were sons of God by an act of God. Those who came out of Egypt may have applied the blood of, to the, of the Passover to their doorposts and lentils, but it was never applied to their hearts. God chose Israel and set them apart as a people to be used by him to bring forth the law of God, the line of David, the history and picture of a chosen people and a different race, the prophets and all their pronouncements against Israel and surrounding nations, and through Israel to bring forth the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this race isn't the race of Abraham, but is a picture of the race 
of Christ, as in Romans chapter 5. Now, all of these things that I just said, the law, David's line, the picture of the chosen people, the prophets and the pronouncements against Israel and, and the nations and, and, and the coming of the Messiah, all of those pictures are the picture of Israel that we have from Deuteronomy 1 and throughout the whole entire Old Testament. A people, these people, for the most part, without joy, contentment, godly peace, and especially without saving faith. That's the picture of these people. They lived for the here and now without any thought of eternity. This is not a picture of a saved people. This is not Hebrews 11 where people are persevering even though they never receive what was promised in this life. The, the picture of Hebrews 11 is the picture of a saved people, not this people. They complained all the time and eventually drove even Moses to sin. They never ceased from idolatry and brought forth God's anger time and again. It all began here. The children got in. The elders under Joshua, which begins going through Joshua, you see the overtaking of the land and the conquering of the parts that they did. And then it goes into Judges, which starts bad and gets worse. And that, that's, apart from this generation, it just goes downhill and goes downhill until they, they're deported into other countries, and then they come back, and then it's the same ugly people and a false religion until they crucify Christ on the cross. That's a picture of Israel. Not the good Israel, just the biological descendants of Abraham. Make, 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 no dis, make no mistake, Moses, Caleb, Joshua were Jewish. All the Old Testament writers were Jewish. Most of the New Testament writers were Jewish. The prophets were Jewish. They're all, all of the people spoken of in a good light, David and, and, and a few of his sons, grandsons and on, were Jewish, saved Jewish. They were the remnant, always a remnant. The great warning to the church from this passage and the Old Testament is that we do not forget we are called out. Sanctification is taken from this word and this calling out, this separating out apart for a holy purpose. Jehovah Kodesh, which is the Lord thy sanctifier, which sets us apart from what? I'll tell you, from the world. From worldliness. From making the world everything that's important as if there is no God. No matter how religious a person might be. The test of a Christian is transformation. Transformation. Which includes sanctification and justification. Remember, Abraham was justified, Romans chapter 4, by his faith alone. And he was sanctified as a process following or coming out of that faith that justified him. To live like the world with all its hatred for God, idolatries, immoralities, and unbelief is to reveal that a person is believer is a believer in name only and not a believer at all. For this reason, accountability within the church, even to the point 
of disciplining a so-called brother is so important and cannot be denied. The following verses should never be ignored. Listen carefully. The foundation of the church is given in Matthew 16 and by Jesus himself while yet facing the cross. He's not gone to the cross yet. There's not much at all spoken about the church in the Gospels. In fact, there are two very clear passages that number one sets forth the foundation for the church and number two, the chief cornerstone, the building block. The first one is laid in Matthew 18. But first the foundation, Matthew 16, 15 through 18. He said to them, that's Jesus, but who do you yourselves say that I am? This is directed at Simon, but also the disciples. Verse 16, Simon says, Simon, Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of John, by John, son of uh, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Upon this rock of proclamation of who I am, thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Make no mistake, this revelation is not from human ability. It is not from human ability. But Jesus made it quite clear it was given by his Father. You know, prior to Pentecost, the disciples were given the internal revelation of Jesus Christ. Prior to Pentecost. I don't know what that says to you. But people who are, have a saving faith cannot be, according to Romans 8, uh, they cannot be just carnal, fleshly men. They can't be just sinful men as born to the race of Adam. Now that Romans 8, yes, is, is speaking after Pentecost and after the Holy Spirit was given after the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And I understand all of that. But if you think that an Enoch in a time prior to the flood could walk with God in such a way that he's just taken up and that Moses could go to the mountain for 40 days and nights and, and fast and pray that Israel would be saved and that he would be lost, if he could do that in the flesh, like the Israelites that we're talking about right now, you might want to rethink that. Now, I know what they teach in seminaries, and I got all that read, and I got all that studied, and you know what? It just doesn't click true with the New Testament. Yes, there's a difference, old and new, and this isn't the main point of this passage, but salvation is a transformed life. Whether it be Abraham, or Noah, or Enoch, or David, or anyone prior to the cross, these men did not act like the rest of the world. They were different. Imperfect as they were, only having the law and not the cross and not the New Testament, and having been weak by what the, the, the smallness of the light that had been revealed, all of that is true. 
But if you think that those men acted like natural, carnal men, religious men who still hate God, yeah, there's something wrong. Secondly, and the first building block of the church is also found in the gospel and coming directly from Christ in Matthew 18, also 15 through 18. And I quote, Now, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that on the testimony of two or three witnesses, every matter may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, he is to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, I'm going to stop at verse 18 because it's at this point that some, most, I don't know, churches and pastors and elders, if they were even to consider doing this, even though it's a command, uh, then they will say, well, you know, a Gentile and a tax collector, we don't treat them bad. You know, we let them come and they can sit in the church and they're just not really part of the fellowship. And there's all different variances of what that means. But that's not what this is saying. This is saying, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, not part of the fellowship. What's going on here? He goes on and says, truly I say to you that whatever you bind on earth shall be, have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. This command by Jesus is a heavenly one and should be carried out by the power and discernment of God, which leaves all carnal living out. This isn't the fear of man that's taking place here. And I'm going to prove this in more passages. This isn't about carnal living. It's not fleshly living. It's not effort, effort living, fleshly effort that we're talking about here. We're talking about standing in the place of God, in the house of God, and doing what Jesus wants us to do. He's talking about not treating them like brothers. That's the key. That's the key. If you refuse to leave even to the church, he is to be to you as a Gentile. That's in the context of he's talking to the Jews, the Jews, no matter what tribe they were from, they were all Jews. And as being all Jews, we're all brothers. They were one family. Not, you, you treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector, and a tax collector was someone who worked for the enemy, was definitely a Gentile and not a brother, and he was one who or could have been a brother, but he was working for the enemy in taking taxes from a nation that, in their eyes, was supposed to be free. We're looking to a Messiah to free us, which wasn't the case. From sin, yes. From the bondage to another nation. That wasn't the primary point. But here, he's saying, they're not a brother, they're, they're not a brother, and you treat them like a tax collector. Someone who sat, looks like a brother, but is working for the Gentiles. Okay, so no carnal living. Nevertheless, ignoring this admonition is detrimental to the good health of any authentic Christian church. If it is not authentic, it is not Christian. No matter what the name might be that's attached to a certain group of people, 
We are not the church in name only. We are the church who carry out God's law. And when this is written, this is written as God's law. Then we have Paul when writing to the church at Corinth. And this is chapter 5. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate, and this is beginning in verse 9, not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean mean at all the sexually immoral people of the world or with the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to leave the world because that's the only kind of people you got on planet Earth except for those who are redeemed. But actually, I wrote to you, here it is, not to associate with any so-called brother. What were we just talking about in Matthew 18? Tax collector, so-called brother, working with, the gen- with, with tax collectors, working with Rome to extract taxes, and they're of the world. They're working with Gentiles and they're acting as a Gentile not to associate with any so-called brother if he is sexually immoral person or a greedy person or an idolater or is verbally abusive or habitually drunk or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now remember the point here. I want to bring this back to Deuteronomy 1. It's talking about, who are we talking about? Are we talking about the church? Or are we talking about a nation of unbelievers? that all died in 40 years' time. Their children were allowed to go in on the, after they conquered the land, and it was just continually acting like unbelievers because they were. That's the point. There was only a small remnant within Israel which were true. Even today, there's only a small remnant that are true, authentic Christians, among a vast majority of people who call themselves Christians and they are actually so-called brothers. Even though the church is so divided and fractured, you can't even tell one from the... You can't, you, you can't tell who's who. You know, you get, you got all these de- denominations, and they're all separated anyway. So before you even get to this part, if you could get there, you have all these divisions that make it even harder to do this. So he goes on, and he says, after he says the greedy and the idolaters and the verb and the habitually drunk and swindlers, not even to eat with such a person. Not even to eat with such a person. See, that doesn't sound like treating them nice. And I'm not saying not nice. I'm just saying not within the brethren. There's a special fellowship that takes place within the brethren where there's community. There's, there can be fellowship. That's why we're told in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, where there's this, you know, it's not permitted to be worshiping among unbelievers. And this is where this has gone to, both in Matthew 18 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Not even to eat, and it's okay to sit down and eat, but not within the fellowship. You can eat with unbelievers all day long. You know, we're not being taken out of the world. We're not being separated in that w- way. We're talking about there's a brotherhood and then there's outside the brotherhood. Of course, we're going to evangelize. We're going to live with the world. but not going to call them brothers. Get the point, please. Verse 12. 
For what business is it mine? For what business of mine is it to judge outsiders? There's the point. We don't judge outsiders, and I'm not saying that, and Paul's not saying that. The Word of God is not saying that. But after asking that question, he says, Do you not judge those who are within the church? Wow. So the most quoted verse in the Bible, which is, Thou shalt not judge, gets really slapped alongside the head here in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 12, because Paul is saying, Do you not judge those who are within the church? (laughs) I mean, come on. This is not a contradiction. There is a judgment by sitting in the seat of God as if you were God. And then there's discerning in order to keep the, the church pure. The Apostle Paul, like the Lord Jesus Christ and God himself, wanted to see a pure church. Brothers, if you're a brother out there listening to this, the church is anything but pure today. Except for very, 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 very few churches. Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God judges. Remove the evil person from among yourselves. The previous statement, I believe, is the command most disobeyed by Christian churches. To carry it out, leadership must be humble and obedient. Otherwise, we are unwilling to look at others for fear of being condemned ourselves. This poses a huge problem. Why should any believer, I'm asking this, why should any believer follow anyone in leadership who is disobedient and incapable of disciplining a member of the church out of love and concern for their eternal soul? Should I say that again? I mean, well, so many pastors talk about evangelism. You want to see evangelism at work? Answer this question, why should any believer follow any leader who is disobedient and incapable of disciplining a member of the church out of the church, out of love and concern for their eternal soul. And that's really where this is going. This is about not only being concerned about Jesus' name and his reputation and what the church is and the church that he's building but also for the eternal souls of those who might be disciplined out of the church. We must understand church discipline <clears throat> Sorry, when we also include Paul's writing to the Galatian churches. This is, so to speak, somewhat the other side of the coin. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, we read this, Brothers and sisters, even if a person is caught in any wrongdoing, You who are spiritual are to restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you are not tempted as well. Let me say that again. Brothers and sisters, even if a person is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, now that can take some defining, but spiritual would be in the kingdom, and mature in the kingdom, walking in the Spirit, knowing how to walk in the Spirit consistently and not always being laid low by temptations, which is possible. 
I mean, there are lots in the church who's sitting in the city gate. He's being defiled by the culture and by the system. And he has to be rescued out by angels and the loss of his wife and what becomes of his daughters and all of that because he was sitting in the city gate. We're not saying here in this message that that is not possible. We're saying here that spiritual people don't do that kind of work, and they wouldn't want to do it anyway. Carnal people who may be carnal for a time and have to get rescued, that's one type. This is a different type. This is a mature Christian who takes his responsibility seriously to live according to the word of God, even to the disciplining of people for the salvation of their souls, possibly, or at least for uh, Jesus to maintain, uh, not Jesus to maintain, but the church to maintain a testimony that honors Christ. And so he goes on, so that you are not tempted as well, only mature people, won't fall prey because of pride and a judgmental spirit to go off doing this kind of thing in an unspiritual way or carnal way. And then he goes on in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love. But we bear one another's burdens and when we go to a person, as in Matthew 18 or 1 Corinthians 5, in this way, as he says in verse 3, for if anyone thinks that he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We, we don't go that way. We go in humility. We go understanding that if but for the grace of God, I would be capable of doing the same thing. And I should see myself worse than everyone else because I know myself better. And I don't know the hearts of anybody else. I've, I don't even know my own motives. And Paul said that. In 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We don't, no one knows the motives of the heart, only God. We look on the outward appearance. We can judge fruit. We can see transformation when the person just stops doing this and that and the other thing and he starts getting gung-ho for God. We can see that on an outward way. And that should never stop us from fulfilling the commandment to discipline. Verse 4, but each one must examine his own work. And then he will have reason for boasting. But not to himself alone, but, but to himself alone, I'm sorry. Then he will have reason for boasting, but to himself alone, not to another. For each one will bear his own load. And so the idea there is we are really all meant to walk this walk that way. And when someone steps out from walking the walk where you hold yourself primarily accountable, then the church has to step in and they have to do it. That's the last thing we want to have happen. But if it happens, it's good. And the person's restored and they don't go off into anything that would, <clears throat> that would speak badly of the church, of the fellowship, whatever they're a part of, and the church remains clean. Believe me, this is not going on on a regular basis in the church today, not even close. In this text, the emphasis is on restoration. That's Galatians chapter 6. Restoration. The person is caught in wrongdoing. The goal is never to discipline a person out of the church, but to restore the disobedient to the church in, a, in an obedient way. And this doesn't just mean people who are running off with the church secretary or doing blatant, obvious sins. They're always stealing 
they're always this this means people who may have a basically good heart and good moral constitution and they don't talk like a christian they never talk like a christian they don't ever quote scripture they don't ever live in that way like a show head and shoulders above the world they they just don't do it this is a, this is hardest of all but going to a brother and saying brother i just see something missing in you you know it's just there's there's a comprehension that's not there and it may just turn out to be a conversation and maybe the person probably maybe if highly offended and if highly offended that's questionable too every person that i've had fellowship and it's been many who I've been close with in close fellowship, they always brought their sins to me. I never had to go to them. That's because that's the way the Christian walk is, by spiritual people. Humility is everything in the Christian. Everything in the Christian, just like forgiveness. God hates believers worshiping alongside unbelievers. He does, he hates it. Why? John says it in this way in 1 John, chapter uh, 1 John, Verses 7 through 11. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who did not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and the Antichrist. So they're rejecting Jesus. But somehow in this passage, I want us to try and look a little bit deeper to what's being said here. It's not just, well, Jesus isn't coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. What's that mean? Well, you know, there's going to be a beam of seed of Christ. This isn't the great white throne judgment. This is the handing out of rewards. And we'll be doing, be, God will be putting them through the fire, our works, our, what we did to build the kingdom. And as we build a kingdom, we can build it with gold, silver, precious stones, Wood, hay, stubble. Wood, hay, stubble will not get through the fire. It will burn up. Gold, silver, precious stones, metals cannot burn up and they just go through the fire and they come out on the other side. Anyone who goes too far and does not remain in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Okay, so now we're into not just saying he came in the flesh, but we're turning off to something else. You're either going to where you can do whatever you want and you have such liberty, you give yourself license to sin, or... You can be so works-minded that you're still working your way to heaven as if Christ hadn't gone to the cross. Why do I say that? Because it says right here, anyone who goes too far and does not remain in the teaching of Christ. That's the same as a person who says Jesus didn't come in the flesh. He's not saying those words. But his life, how he lives out his Christian walk, either by license or legalism, does not testify to Jesus Christ. That same person, John says, does not have God. The one who remains in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. He's not just working his way to the Father and, and sidestepping the Son. He's always going through the Son. He always finds himself at the foot of the cross where Jesus sacrificed for him. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. That's serious. You're not gonna, you can't enter my house. I'm not going to give you a greeting like the brothers do. 
because you're not in the kingdom because you're saying you're a Christian, but you know what? You're, I don't see Jesus in you, and I don't hear the teaching of the cross in you, and I don't hear in the gospel in you. I'm hearing something else. Now, you might say, they might say, you know, yeah, I'm preaching Jesus. I'm preaching the gospel. And do you need Jesus to die for your sins? But it's really not there in behavior. And then verse 11, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. This is a person who's propagating, but he's not propagating Christ. He's religious, but he's not an authentic Christian. See, this is where it really gets hard. But you know what? It's no less a command for these people as well. Now, if these people are making up the church, which you're not supposed to be greeting or bringing into your house, if they're making up the church, God, how could God be pleased with this when he's given commands for that not to be? It's sin on the part of the church. Furthermore, with regards to humility, churches today need to consider how many non-believers are in their ranks, how much discipline needs to be done, and how many churches do not even possess any believers. Now, why do I say these things? I'm going to read through this, and then we're going to close. Let us hear the following verse from Paul's letter, verses from Paul's letter to the Romans, with all humility. And this is from Romans, and... uh, And it starts at verse 17. I believe this is chapter 11. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you being, it is chapter 11, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partakers of them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Now, for those who don't believe in a restoration of of Israel, I want you to understand that the root is supporting. Now, however you want to define the root, and you just can't take it out of context. We're talking here, and I'm going to go on and make it very clear, that this is about Jew and Gentile. Verse 20. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. This is talking about Israel. And this is talking about Israel that's broken off and the the church then began. And that's what happened in Pentecost. Well, following Pentecost, you know, they went to the Jews, went to the Jews, many Jews became saved. But eventually it just went on and on further and further and the persecution was coming from the Jews And they hated Jesus, uh, the vast majority. um, And they were rejected. And you've had the Gentile churches, churches of Gentiles, becoming the church ever since. Verse 20. You will say then, branches were cut off so that I might be grafted in. Verse 20, quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, now that's the Jews, that's Israel, he will not spare you either. See then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell. Severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. For otherwise you will be cut off. 
And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are the natural branches be grafted in to their own olive tree? That's a big question. So the olive tree is law, the history of Israel, the prophets, the Psalms, uh, all of that text that made up the Old Testament that came out of the nation of Israel, a genetically engineered people from Abraham who were Israelites, who were then rejected, and God turned to the Gentiles. They were grafted out. We were grafted in, but that's not our natural tree. It's the natural tree to a Jew. It's not a natural tree to a Gentile. Here comes the warning. For I do not want you, brothers and sisters, to be uninformed uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. There it is. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The church in our day is filled with entertainment, people who think that music is worship, and who do not take passages like this seriously. That judgment is not to be committed because it's an offense that makes people turn away because it's, it's too cultish. And this is Bible. This is the Holy Scriptures. This is in my word. This is what God says. The churches today are arrogant in their disobedience. I mean, they're arrogant in their disobedience. And the warning here in Romans 11 is clearly to be humble and not arrogant. And the day is coming when the church will be cut off. You know, people like to look at the church going out as a raptured, victorious church. And I don't want to shortchange churches around the world where I think the number this year so far is seven or 8,000 people died for Christ. There is victory today. The gates of hell will not prevail. God's work is being done. People are victorious. And at the exact same time, there is a church in Jesus' name that does not belong to Jesus. And there are a lot kind of churches, like, like Cousin Lot, who stood in the city gate and had to be rescued. And Jesus is coming back, and when he does... And I, I don't know for certain when that rapture will take place. And I'm not for certain exactly all who there are who will not take the mark of the beast and lose their heads. And who will die for Christ. And they will be saved out of, or through, which is the real word, uh, through a tribulation. Just like those who are dying for their faith today around the world. But without getting into that, there's an arrogance 
that if you're in the church, you're doing great. Yeah, that's not what we're looking at today. What we're looking at today is a church that's contributing to a bad, bad testimony for Jesus Christ. Not that Jesus is part of that, but it's being accomplished through people in churches that are not following the rules. And there are rules in the New Testament. And we don't follow the rules to get to heaven. We follow the rules because we're on our way to heaven and we love Christ. Big difference between those two. So I'm going to close just reading the verses and then I'll pray. And these verses are from Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 12 and finishing with verse 19. Take care, brothers and sisters, that there be not in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another every day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we keep the beginning of our commitment firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose dead bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise and glory for the straightforward truth of your word. You are a hell, fire, and brimstone preaching God. Jesus is your ever-begotten Son, and he was a hell, fire, and brimstone preaching Christ, Messiah. Just like and superseding John the Baptist who who prepared the way and who was a no-nonsense preacher and who spoke to the religious leaders in his day and said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The wrath to come. God is an angry God. Jonathan Edwards got it right. He proclaimed sinners in the hands of an angry God at the beginning and the outset of what was known as the Great Awakening. Lord, we could ask for a Great Awakening today, that men would stop playing a church, stop fearing men, stop coddling sinners who are on their way to hell, Stop protecting people's feelings and start proclaiming the gospel with power because the word of God is not professed in word but in power, the Apostle Paul said. Lord, we need power today. We need an awakening. We need courage. We need courage. It's the cowards, according to Revelation 21, that don't go to heaven. The courageous Go to heaven. And Lord, we need courage. We need you to fill us with your Holy Spirit. Overpower us and fill us. Fill us to the brim 
so that we can stand against what's going on in the church today. The world is the world. We seek to save some, to pluck them out of the fire, as it were. And we may get, we might be get burned in the process. But Lord, you are a good God and your promises are true. You never break your word. So I pray, dear Lord, you would not break your word today. I know you won't. I shouldn't even ask that. I know you won't break your word. I pray, dear Heavenly Father, we would have faith in the true fact that you will never break your word. Protect us, fill us, bring down an awakening that can only be done by God and who wants us to pray. I ask these things, save the lost, send us to the lost. I ask these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.